Welcome to this special episode of Stats and Stories. I'm Rosemary Pennington, and this week's as well as next week's episodes are brought to you in partnership with Significance Magazine and the Royal Statistical Society. Each will feature a series of interviews with guests of the recent RSS International Conference in Belfast, Ireland. To start, Sarah McDonald speaks with engineer Ian Flint about minimizing food waste. Hi, this is Sarah McDonnell from the Royal Statistical Society, and I'm at the RSS 2019 conference with Ian Flint from G's Growers to talk about one of the sessions that we're holding today from the Business, Industry and Finance stream at conference, minimising food waste by adapting growing programmes to the weather. So, hi Ian. Hi Sarah. Thanks for coming in to talk to us. No, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Could you give some background to G's Growers and what they do and what your role is there? Sure, so G's Growers uh, is part of G's Fresh and as a group we are one of the biggest suppliers of fresh produce, so salad crops and other vegetables in Europe. Um, specifically I'm part of the innovation team within G's Growers who is the cooperative of growers in that group uh, and in our innovation team we specifically look in two areas, we look at uh, precision farming, so that's trying to farm intelligently using using data to farm, uh, as well as the sustainability team trying to minimize the impacts that we have while we are growing. Great. And you talk specifically about the IceCam product, uh, project, which is a crop, crop growth model. Um, could you just give a brief explanation of what it is and what it was created for? Sure. So the IceCam project which stands for the iceberg, meaning iceberg lettuce, our main crop, iceberg crop adaptive model. Uh, and effectively what we're trying to do is understand how the crop responds to the weather. So uh, we operate with two kind of core assumptions. One is that there's an optimum temperature for growth and there's a saturation level of light, meaning a, a level of light above which the crop is not going to grow any faster. And this is based on uh, nearly 100 years of uh, research in photosynthesis. So it's a well understood uh, response. Uh, based on that assumption, and another one where we assume that it takes a set number of days for the crop to come to maturity uh, under optimum conditions. We then build a model based on observations of planting dates and harvest dates for when we think a crop will come ready for harvest based on the weather. And this allows us to adapt our growing programs that we, that we build uh, to weather, so that if we see it's coming warmer or it's coming colder, we can adapt what we're doing uh, to avoid wasting crop by growing things that we're not going to be able to sell or, or not growing enough to meet demand. And is crop growth modeling commonly used in agriculture? So it is used in agriculture, it has been for a while in what's called arable crops. So that's your cereal crops like wheat, barley, uh, soybeans, potatoes, and that's primarily for food security reasons. So in a lot of developing countries, the UN has tried to push um, crop modeling to help farmers understand what's going to happen to their crops to respond to, to the change in climate or just to seasonal variability that's normal uh, to help uh, prevent food shortages going on. We're in what's called horticulture, so that's vegetable growing, and that's it's really not very common at all. We haven't actually come across any other businesses that do the kind of work that we're doing. Um, and for us, it's an interest primarily because we can't store the produce that we produce. We have to sell it the week that we harvest it or it will rot. So we really need to um, be making the correct sowing and growing decisions every week, uh, and that's why we've been motivated uh, to develop this project. 
And what sort of things have helped to improve crop growth modelling over time? Is it fine-tuning the model, better weather predictions, or are there other factors involved? So it's a, it's a combination of the two, really. Uh, we are, we are fine-tuning the model every year. Every year we get more information, we respond, we see a different uh, weather pattern in each region, which gives us a sort of different perspective on the data, and that has been slowly improving the accuracy. Uh, but of course, a better weather forecast is going to help us out. Uh, we're talking about making sowing decisions uh, when we actually put the crop into the greenhouse 10, 12, 14, maybe even 16 weeks before we actually harvest it and no weather forecasts go out that far. So we really have imperfect knowledge about what's going to happen, even if our model is perfectly uh, responds to the weather information we have perfectly. So we're constantly on the search for better weather forecasts. Uh, and someone I met in the conference today actually was going to help me uh, understand what his business does in terms of seasonal weather forecasting. So we're constantly on the hunt for uh, especially better weather data. So, and, and you've actually been doing some, some of your own weather. You, you mentioned in your session yeah, that you've so, been... Yeah, so we actually have 15 um, weather stations that we have managed across the UK. So in uh, East Anglia, um, Sussex and Norfolk. We have 15 weather stations that are every hour are recording the temperature, um, sunlight, precipitation, uh, these kind of variables, humidity. Um, so that we can actually calibrate the weather, predict the weather forecasts that we're getting in to understand how it's affecting the weather observations that we're making. Yeah. So as well as weather, there are other factors involved in, in your modeling um, that you mentioned in your session today, things like sales expectations, uh, other things that happen during the process. Could you just talk us through a few of those? Sure, yeah. So we have, we have a sales program that we, uh, we get from our customers. So Tesco, Sainsbury's, we have a long uh, sort of ongoing relationship with them. Uh, about an expectation of what they're going to need every week. Uh, but those sales demands will, will change with time. That um, uh, things, things may happen in the market that will cause them to realize they need to change uh, how much they are selling in any given week. And so we need to try to respond to that or at least be, be ready for the fact that that could change. So we have uncertainty from the weather side, but also actually from the goal side, from actually what we're trying to achieve. It's a bit of a moving target in terms of that sales. We need to be ready to respond to that. Yeah. And you also mentioned something in your session about the AgriEye project. Would you like to say just a few things about sure. that? Yeah, so AgriEye is, the, again, like guys can, we've given a name to our project to help sell it within the business. It's always, always helpful to do that and to sell it outside. So AgriEye is our remote sensing project. Um, so what we're doing there is we're actually using light aircraft in the UK as well as drones in the UK and in Spain where we grow crop in the wintertime. Uh, we're using these two platforms to take imagery at three centimeter resolution. So each pixel is three by three centimeters. That is fine res resolution enough that we can actually uh, distinguish between plants in the field. So we take imagery uh, early in the crop's life before the leaves are overlapping one another, meaning we can actually distinguish between them, count them in the field through the imagery, and actually then size them to see where the small ones are, where the large ones are, and gain a huge amount of information about what's going on in the field that the farmers would never be able to see at the ground walking through the crop. And this will help farmers sort of optimize the amount that they can grow and, and the size that they can that they can grow their, their crops at. Yeah, so the, the, the goal really is to try to treat every crop individually. The last 100 years, we've been able to basically grow at larger and larger scales. That's been the innovation in agriculture. Yeah. That means bigger and bigger tractors, bigger and bigger machinery, sprayers, everything, bigger irrigation booms but it doesn't mean that we can ever actually do anything different within that. We're just doing the same thing at a very, very large scale. Uh, and what information technology now means is that we're able to start going back to the original way of farming where the intuition of the farmer allows them to treat each crop individually. We want to be able to do that 
at the 100 hectare scale, where we can actually apply a variable rate of nitrogen or other fertilizers or pesticides to each crop. So we're using just as much as is required and also improving the uniformity of the crop and then therefore the overall yield. Minimizes costs for us, minimizes environmental damage. Uh, overall, it's a win-win, it's a but it's a challenge to, to achieve that. Sure. And I liked the phrase you use, data-driven data approach to growing, um, that that's the, the approach that you're using within, within your team to, to farming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can this model be adapted for crops other than leafy vegetables? Um, and if so, how, how might it differ? You mentioned cereals earlier on. Yeah, so it's, it's based on those two sort of simple assumptions that I said about how photosynthesis responds to temperature and light, and that uh, under optimum conditions, uh, there will be a certain number of days for it to grow. So I think those assumptions may be maybe more or less re relevant for different crop types. Uh, but we've, we've extended this model beyond just iceberg lettuce out to obviously other types of lettuce since they're quite similar crops. Uh, we've extended it out to radishes, to baby leaf crops, which is your spinach, and rocket, things like that. And the same approach has worked in all those, those sectors. Um, I, we, we don't grow a lot of cereal grains in our, in our business. It's a sort of a side business. It's not actually associated with cheese growers. Uh, but there's no reason to think why it wouldn't work if you wanted to have that approach. The value in doing what we're doing, though, is uh, based on the fact that we have, we have to deliver every week uh, what we harvest, so it's fresh produce. You don't really have that problem in cereal grains where you can store things. So if you have a bit too much this week, not enough the next, that's not such a problem when you can accumulate supply. Um, for us, that's a huge problem, and that's what's driving our model, model uh, development. Well, it sounds like an absolutely fascinating pro project. So thank you ever so much for coming in to talk to us. Absolutely, thank you. This is Sarah McDonnell from the Royal Statistical Society um, 2019 conference. Thank you very much. And next, we have editor of Significance magazine, Brian Taran, interviewing the head of the Quality Center and Methodology Advisory Service at the Office for National Statistics, James Tucker, about threats to data privacy. Hi, this is Brian Tarran with Significance Magazine, and I'm at RSS Conference in Belfast, and I'm talking now with James Tucker of the ONS. Hi, James. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, you've just come from a, a talk about privacy methods, so yeah. we're going to have a little chat about that, and you can explain to listeners what it is you were talking about. But first, do you want to give uh, listeners a bit of a background to who you are and what you do at ONS? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I've been at the ONS now for about eight years, and I've worked in other government departments um, before, and I've also been a bit of a long-standing friend of the RSS too. So I did a stint on the um, RSS Council, and now I'm involved in uh, the editorial board for Significance magazine. My role at the ONS is on uh, um, improving the quality of our statistics. So I work across the whole of the government stats service, not just ONS, to improve the quality of everybody's outputs. Okay, so where does your uh, interest in privacy methods come from? Um, in, in my area, we, um, we have this program of reviews called National Statisticians Quality Reviews. So in the past, they've been quite sort of narrowly focused, a bit of a sort of deep dive into very specific statistics. But we realized that there wasn't a way of looking at the really big issues affecting the statistical system at large. So we've completely revamped these reviews. And um, our first one was on um, privacy and uh, confidentiality, which was actually quite a tough one to start off with, but definitely a worthwhile thing to look at. So when we're talking about privacy in uh, this, this context, in the ONS context, uh, is it um, everything from you know, making sure when people uh, take part in 
surveys, that the data is protected, all the way up to when data is released, that it can't be, uh, they, that, you know, the, the individuals can't be identified based on the information that's released? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, our main focus really is on the, um, the data that we put out there. So um, what we found is that um, while there's a huge amount of um, new data sets available, and this is really exciting for people working on data, it opens up all sorts of new opportunities for, to innovate with data. And essentially people are like a kid in a candy store with it. But on the flip side, the, um, it does also open up more ways for mal malicious people to kind of use that data for their own ends so we have to keep pace with all the all of this and make sure that all the methods we use are fit for purpose still because I guess privacy or you know respondent protection identity protection that sort of stuff in the old days might have just been taking the names off of mm. Uh, mm. A, a, you know a, a record or you know making sure that um, particular identifiers weren't included, but now it's much more difficult than that, right? Because people can put together different data sets to try and figure out who people are based on things that you, you know, you might think one data set's anonymized sufficiently, but if they can pair up unique characteristics maybe mm. across data sets, then there's a possibility of yeah, to identify someone. Definitely with the proliferation of different data sources, people can, if they want to, use this to sort of um, look across these and potentially re um, reconstruct um, and identify a, an individual from those. Um, another sort of emerging issue is the use of social media. So people put a lot of information on social media and um, although there are privacy settings on most of the platforms, really you have to go from the premise that um, everything you put on social media is public because as soon as you share something, regardless of your privacy setting, somebody else could then share that and then it's out into the public domain. And um, with these sort of supplementary pieces of information, that adds a, yet another dimension to the complexity of this. So what sort of privacy methods are you looking at in particular? I, I, I guess there's a range, so maybe you want to talk, talk listeners through a, a couple of them maybe. Yeah, sure. So. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's ones that uh, come from the, um, there's a lot more demand for sort of custom tables. So, so for example, with the um, 2011 census, um, the tables we published were all sort of um, laid out static tables, but there's a lot more demand now for um, sort of table builders and things that uh, people can produce their own, um, their own sort of sets of variables. But then that throws up the issue of um, how do you protect tables that you don't know are being produced? So there's an um, there's techniques that you can do to add an extra sort of layer of protection on those um, an area that I'm particularly interested in there's a lot of research going on in the ONS and elsewhere is on um, synthetic data which um, isn't actually a new concept it's um, the idea of using an artificial data set that has the same statistical properties of the real thing um, when I say it's not new, it's really come back to the fore since we've had the power to um, produce these sorts of data sets on much larger data sets than we could do previously. And in a sense, it offers that ability to circumvent the um, whole privacy protection thing by producing an artificial data set that could take the place of the real thing. But these, um, these aren't just made up numbers, are they? Is it, is it a case of kind of uh, constructing data from you know, real people, but in such a way that you're swapping sort of data yeah, or characteristics, yeah, it, identifiers, and, or not identifiers, sorry, but 
aspects of a real data set to create something new? Yeah, the idea is to understand the sort of key statistical properties of that data set and um, produce it in a way that doesn't reveal the uh, the characteristics of individuals. I mean, it's, it is still uh, very much a sort of growth area, so there's a lot of research going on at the moment. Um, a while back we um, hosted an event at the ONS and we were really taken aback by the interest in it and we had people from 30 or so organisations from across the country coming to attend and so it's far from a, a niche area but I think there's still um, sort of some important questions to be answered about it so on the one hand it does have this potential but then there's also a question of how accurately does it actually simulate the real thing and if you get closer in terms of accuracy, do you then actually end up introducing um, uh, privacy disclosure risk into the data, even though it's artificial? So I can, I can certainly understand that there is a lot of research to be done, because I guess this isn't a kind of thing where you can say, oh, we think this works, so let's just try it and mm. see what mm. happens. So how, do you, how are you testing these things to make sure that they are doing what you want them to do before they become part of the way of releasing uh, yeah. Information. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. It also it it sort of it that that sort of thinking impacts on all the um, privacy methods that we're looking at. So, you re yes, you can, you're right. You can't just introduce something and sort of hope it works. So we we do some sort of pilot studies. For example, we've uh, um, done a pilot study on creating a synthetic version of the labour force survey data, which is one of our so the ONS's major major data sets um, that we we collect. Um, also an area that we're looking to expand is on um, intruder testing so that's where you have to you know really get into the mindset of somebody who wants to crack these data data sources and that's actually harder than it sounds because um, if you bring in sort of um, people who are kind of friendly sort of intruders trying to trying to sort of um, get something out of the, the, these data sets they might not have the level of determination and deviousness perhaps that um, you know the the real sort of criminal would have with them that's kind of, uh, I guess, the um, it's analogous to uh, when companies do sort of penetration testing of mm. their systems, right? You want you want to simulate an attack, mm. and mm. does it stand up to that attack? Yeah. But it's, yeah. I guess, as you say, it's you, you can't throw it out there to the real bad guys because they they might well show up cleverer ways of going about it or more devious ways of going about it but then you're at risk of identifying people exactly yeah there's a yeah there's a there's a sort of a fine line to walk there but over, over time we have built up a sort of, you know, set of realistic intruder scenarios so to really understand how how this would happen but i think the important thing is that the area as a whole isn't one that stands still so you can't just introduce an approach to privacy protection and then leave it um, um, it it has to stand the test yeah it has to keep on evolving with the times and essentially you can end up in a bit of an arms race with the people trying to break break uh, break the protection of these things so you basically embarked on a, on a research project that will never end um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean it's obviously protection of data um, is the you know it's one of the kind of most important important things I mean there's uh, it all boils down to this uh, tension between the use of the use of a data set so um, on one extreme if you didn't publish anything then you could relax about the privacy side but then there'd be no statistics to inform policy no jobs for the, the likes of, of us and um, uh, at the other extreme you could throw all the data out there so it's about finding that sweet spot where you have a sort of balanced approach which um, reflects the risk associated with the data so for example some data is more sensitive than others and you'd be a lot more stringent with that than perhaps others. Well, I don't envy you the task of having to do that, but good luck with it.
Thanks so much, Brian. Lastly, we have Mags Wiley from the Royal Statistical Society interviewing Kevin Johansson from the expert group on Sami statistics in Norway about using statistical data to improve welfare policymaking. Hi, I'm Mags Wiley and I'm reporting from the RSS annual conference, which this year comes from Belfast. I'm with Kevin Johansson, who is from the expert group for Sami Statistics, based in Norway, who is delivering a session on statistics to ensure welfare for ethnic minorities. Welcome, Kevin. And for those in, uh, not in the know, can you tell us um, who the Sami people are? Yeah. Where they're based? It's, uh, it's an indigenous uh, people uh, based in Norway, Sweden, Finland and uh, Russia. And uh, we think that there might be something like uh, a little under 100,000 Sami uh, people altogether, but the numbers are not totally, we are, we are not totally sure about that yet. Uh, there were also originally 10 different Sami languages, so it's not only one of them, but mostly because of assimilation, but also partly because of other reasons, uh, many of those uh, languages are now distinct. So in Norway, for example, there are three different uh, Sami languages uh, that are spoken daily. The biggest one uh, has between 20,000 and 35,000 speakers, and the smallest one has only 600 people uh, speaking it. So, uh, so that is the situation. Um, so tell us a bit about your talk. Yeah, uh, well, uh, we're going to focus on uh, how we develop uh, Sami statistics, because uh, that has been uh, relatively tricky when we started with it. Uh, 12 years ago, we had to start totally from scratch. There were hardly any Sami statistics uh, available. We had to start making it. We had to make phone calls, find out, for example, how many um, Sami students you have studied the Sami language, how many people who speak uh, Sami language. We didn't have any of those numbers at that time, uh, which made it very difficult for politicians when they should develop uh, a, a policy on how to strengthen and uh, vitalize uh, Sami languages, for example. It was the same case with uh, uh, health issues. Uh, how many Sami patients uh, did you have? And did they have any other needs than, for example, the majority population in Norway and so on? So uh, when we are now uh, kept on and this uh, project for 12 years, we have uh, we publish annually a book on Sami statistics on uh, several topics. And uh, that has been, so to say, the, the Bible for politicians for how to, <laughs> to deal with uh, numbers for Sami the Sami population. And how did you go about putting together the statistics on the Sami people? That is a very good question because it was a very hard uh, job. Uh, as I said earlier, we started uh, more or less on scratch. We had to find out uh, everything by ourselves. We had to just make phone calls to all the municipalities in Norway. We spoke with hospitals, we spoke with schools, we spoke with everybody who had any in a way or another, any touch with uh, Sami people, any contact with, uh, with Sami people. And so uh, that way we started to gather information and, uh, and get numbers. In the beginning, it was maybe not the most accurate because we didn't know if we reached everyone. But uh, now, after 12 years, we are quite sure that the numbers we present now are pretty correct. Um, did you encounter kind of any challenges along the way? There are very many challenges. If I should uh, mention uh, the most important one is the feelings, because uh, some people have uh, been under what you call discrimination and assimilation for very, very many years. Uh, because of that, they don't necessarily have very much faith in the government or in 
researchers and so on. So not all of them wanted to give out any information. They didn't want to admit if they were Samis or not. Uh, I can understand that because their generation, like two generations ago, if you in Norway happened to be registered as a Sami, that would only have a negative impact on you. So uh, uh, the older Sami people, we had to uh, work quite hard with to convince them that this was actually for the good of the Sami people. Uh, the younger people are uh, much easier. They don't see. They don't have the same uh, experience. So. For them, it's, uh, it's not any problem. So it's much easier to uh, work with and to develop uh, Sami statistics now than it was when we started. And what did you learn about the Sami population? Uh, we have learned a, a lot of things. Uh, there are, when, you, when the majority create uh, statistics on uh, Samis and on other indige indigenous people, it's very often focused on the differences and uh, what uh, the minority is lacking according to the if you compare with the majority population, that would mean that they very often point out that they have less edu education, a lower income, and so on. Uh, we have also found other things that uh, maybe the majority statisticians uh, who represent the majority not always uh, think about that. For example, the family ties within Sami societies are, um, can be of a big benefit for Sami people in, uh, also in difficult uh, times of uh, life and so on. So, it's a, it is a complicated uh, question to answer, but it's, uh, yeah, we have found out some good things and some things that uh, we have to work very much on. Uh, this uh, month we are publishing a, an article on uh, sexual abuse in Sami societies, and when we see what the, how the situation is there, we see that uh, also within the Sami society we have a lot of uh, issues that we have to work on ourselves to, to uh, make better. Um, and that leads me nicely onto my next question, which was how do you think these stats will help policymakers in the future? Yeah, I think we, it will help a lot. And, and the response we, we get from both uh, politicians in the Sami parliament, but definitely also from politicians in the Norwegian uh, parliament, is that uh, this is what they use when they develop uh, uh, politics on, uh, on the areas. Uh, they uh, finally get uh, knowledge on how the situation actually is that it didn't have before. Uh, like uh, when I used to work for the Sami parliament myself back in the days, uh, very often we unfortunately had to make uh, guesses on how uh, the situation were. Sometimes those guesses were re relatively correct. Sometimes they appear to be not that correct. So uh, now it's uh, much easier to make a, a policy that uh, actually works for the benefit of the Sami people. And what are the next steps for the project? Uh, we're going to continue uh, publishing uh, statistics uh, on uh, issues that are important for uh, for Sami people and also for the for the government and knowledge for the majority for resources and so on. Uh, the main focus will probably be on uh, on education and on uh, health. Uh, we see that those two uh, topics are uh, are very important. So, but we also uh, focus more now on. Uh, publishing uh, statistics in Sami languages to use this to, as a mean to, to strengthen and vitalize the, the Sami languages. So uh, it's both a question of the content, but also on in which language we publish it in. And how do you think these um, new statistics will kind of help tackle prejudice? 
in those communities. I, uh, I hope and I think that it's going to help the situation quite a bit. We recently published an uh, article on uh, discrimination against uh, Sami people in Norway and uh, the numbers are very clear. It's a nine times uh, higher chance that you are discriminated in Norway if you are a Sami than if you belong to the, to the majority. In, uh, so very, very many Sami people uh, have uh, at least once in their life and in many cases, uh, once uh, at least once uh, this last year, been uh, discriminated for several reasons. Uh, we have also seen that um, it's very high numbers, unfortunately, on domestic violence and violence against uh, Sami women is extremely high. Uh, so these are things we we focusing on a lot right now. So. Uh, we almost uh, force the politicians to, to make a stand and to actually deal with these issues in a way to, to solve the problem. All right, thanks very much, yeah, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mags. Well, that's it for this special episode of Stats and Stories in partnership with Significance Magazine and the Royal Statistical Society. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your comments to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future episodes of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.